Welcome to In Season, where we explore the farms, gardens, and wild spaces of the lower Columbia Pacific region. I'm Teresa Retzloff, and today I'm going maybe a little bit beyond our boundaries, a little bit beyond our borders, but also still talking about stuff that happens here on the coast. Um, I'm talking to Amy Garrett. She is uh, works with OSU Extension Small Farms Program, and she's been instrumental in the dry farming project that happens there. And we're going to talk about dry farming today. What is dry farming? Why do you do it? I've been doing it for a while now, and it's been really cool, interesting to learn about, but I, she knows way more than I do about it. So we're gonna pick her brain and talk a little bit about this cool way of farming with less water. Hi, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's so always good to talk to you and always good to check in. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what is dry farming? And, and I know that's hard to define still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of different definitions and interpretations out there of what dry farming is and what dry farming isn't. But in general, we're talking about crop production during a dry season, just using the moisture that's stored in the soil from the rainy season. And it's typically uh, occurring in regions where there's 20 inches or more of annual precipitation. So it's a very low input, place-based approach and given that a lot of growers are um, in different contexts, some have water rights, some don't have water rights, um, we have expanded uh, you know, the work we're doing. So some people that have the ability to irrigate will irrigate once just to get things established and then pull it after that. So, uh, so we're really just, our end goal is to reduce irrigation uh, for crop production during our summer season. But uh, so, yeah, I think that that's the long and the short of it. There's a lot of different interpretations and definitions, but we're really talking about crop production without irrigation or in some cases irrigating once to get things established, not after that where that's an option. So this is different than, you know, when people are you know, planting in the fall and then taking advantage of just, you know, the seasonal rainfall that happens, you know, like like when you plant a garlic crop and you plant it in the fall and then you harvest it the following summer and it gets rained on all winter long, that's, that's not really what we would call dry farming. It's more like talking about those summer month crops. Yeah, that would be unirrigated. There's a lot of opportunity in our region to, to grow uh, crops without irrigation um, in, the, in the fall. So like our garlic and our fava beans and those fall planted um, crops are drought avoidant. So they're uh, taking advantage and they're growing during the wet season um, I wouldn't call that dry farming, uh, but it is unirrigated. What are, so let's talk a little bit about the kinds of crops and what makes for a good, good plant to grow in a dry farming situation, because not all plants are good for dry farming. You can't, like for example, lettuce would be a terrible thing to try and dry farm, and, and why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, shallow rooted crops um, are typically not very well suited for dry farming. Uh, so crop selection, we're looking at a lot of the crops we've been working with so far are um, tomatoes, squash, uh, melons, dry beans, corn. Uh, so those potatoes. are and potatoes. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. So those are the crops we've been working with so far in this project because a lot of the recommendations out there are uh, to irrigate them and to how much you irrigate and how much you fertilize is. You know, in any crop production resource you look up, it's a lot of re recommendations on how much to irrigate and fertilize. And so we're talking about uh, how to do that, not at all or minimally. 
were, were possible. What was so fascinating, I think the first year that I participated in this dry farming collaborative that you were putting together, and it was kind of an, I think you were motivated by um, drought, the drought that a lot of farmers were starting to experience, especially in the Willamette Valley back in like 2014, people were getting water rights cut off. And you were looking at these other growing methods and thinking about like, well, what do we do if we don't have irrigation water? How do we grow, still continue to grow things? And I got interested in it because I had land that we had fenced, but we were having trouble getting irrigation to. It doesn't have any easy irrigation access to it. And so I was kind of fascinated by this and raised my hand. I'm like, I want to learn about this. And we trialed those, that first year. I remember we grew a zucchini, we grew a delicata squash, and we grew a potato. And I think it was the zucchini was dark star, the potato was yellow fin, and the delicata was zeppelin. And I really kind of didn't think it was going to work. I mean, it was, it's a little <laughs> hard to like plant something and then just say, okay, good luck, buddy, and walk away. But I did. And I was blown away by how well things did. And especially the zucchini. I think we've talked about this before. It's like, I would never grow an irrigated zucchini again. Mm -hmm. They do not need to be watered. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe if you're, if you're growing in a container, but if you're growing it in the ground and your ground has any like moisture holding capacity, it just, it, it's a much more flavorful and better tasting crop that you get, fruits that you get. And, and that's because like when you irrigate that water also goes into the fruits, mm -hmm. right? So they can sometimes be more watery. And mm -hmm. when you don't irrigate, you sometimes get smaller fruits, but the flavor is intensified. Mm -hmm. And is that what you're seeing across all the trials that you've been doing overall? Yeah, the, there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, you just mentioned some of the reasons that people uh, have gravitated towards or started exploring dry farming. And yeah, enhanced flavor uh, is definitely one of those reasons for, for folks. So enhanced flavor and in some cases, uh, shelf life. So winter squash, uh, Alex Stone has done some research with winter squash and uh, shown that a lot of the varieties that will typically rot in storage early will store it into the winter months and even into the spring. Uh, so that is definitely uh, a benefit. And there's also like values around resource conservation, water, um, so and also soil health is so important for dry farming. And, uh, water uh, holding capacity. I think about that a lot out here on the coast because in our coastal communities, all of our water is coming from rivers and creeks that are also salmon bearing, fish bearing habitat. You know, mm -hmm. salmon, trout, amphibians, all kinds of lamprey. And when we're pulling the most water out of them is in the summer when those species really need there to be water left in those creeks and waterways. And so anything that you can do to reduce the amount of water being pulled out of those systems, I think is great. And agriculture is one of the things like you can, you can end up using a lot of water. And it's been really fascinating for me. I think that, I mean, there's certainly crops that I drive farm and I've learned like, oh, that doesn't really need any water to grow well. But it's helped me to reduce the amount of water that I use on my other crops because I think I have a better understanding of my soil and what's happening a couple of feet down. You know, on the surface, it may look super dry, but a couple of feet down, it might still be fully saturated. And if the plant's roots go that far down, it's going to be just fine. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> some of the, there's, there's different planting densities that you have to consider though. And, and so many farms and, and home gardens 
in like recent decades, it's all been focused on intensive growing. And this is not intensive growing. Can you talk a little bit about why and, and plant spacing? Yeah. So for plant spacing in a dry farm system where you're not irrigating, uh, typically we start off with about double the spacing that you would in an irrigated situation. And that's going to depend also on equipment, you know, how wide your rows are spaced, for example. But about double the spacing you would in an irrigated situation is a good starting point. And then you can actually do density trials if you have, if you have the curiosity uh, and, and really dial in what's going to work. Because it's really going to depend on your soil depth and water holding capacity also. So let's talk about soil. Because it doesn't work in every soil. And, you know, again, here in our coastal communities, you know, there are a lot of places like my farm has a, a combination of silt loam and clay. And in the main area where I dry farm, it's it's kind of like a two and a half feet of a, a really nice silt loam on top of a bed of clay. So there's a lot of moisture holding capacity, like the silt loam drains beautifully, but then like that clay does not dry out. Mm-hmm. So that is problematic in a really wet year, but in dry years, it's been great because the plants can totally access moisture in the soil. But if you have really sandy soil or really rocky soil, mm-hmm. where there, it's like, and you, we've been trained to think about good drainage is what you really want in a farm or a garden, but that's actually maybe not so great. I think that there's a lot of nuances and, um, you know, a heavy clay soil, while, while it might hold on to water well, it may not be, um, it, the roots of your crops may not be able to penetrate that clay to access it. So available water is different than water holding capacity. And uh, Andy Gallagher of Red Hill Soils has worked with us on multiple projects and with Alex Stone and Matt Davis also. And uh, we pulled five foot soil cores at these different sites that are trying dry farming out and really looking at to a depth of five feet what's happening in the soil if there's a restrictive feature whether that's gravel or bedrock or uh, heavy sticky clay where that roots can't penetrate so there's a lot of nuances and in some cases there is a water table that's perched just a few feet below the surface so there's in a way like sub irrigation that's happening because you know, demystifying what's happening below the soil surface, I think, is part of helping people get a little confidence about uh, they're not just killing their plants. <laughs> Which is something that I think both farmers and gardeners do a lot of. Mm-hmm. And certainly throughout the course of these trials, I think I've killed a lot of plants. Mm-hmm. But I've learned a lot, too, about, you know, and for me, one of the most fascinating things was realizing that, like, I think my limiting factors were not really a lack of moisture in the soil, but like that I just needed to work on my pH and work on my soil fertility. And that, I mean, like we start out with a really low pH here, especially in our coastal communities because of our heavy rainfall. And um, I think Clatsop County, I was looking it up recently, our, our average rainfall is about 87 inches a year. It's a lot of rain. That is a lot and of that rain. just leaches a lot of things out of the soil. And, and so our soils tend to be more acidic. And, and most vegetable crops like a more neutral pH. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you got to add lime. Every year you got to add lime to raise the pH and make it less acidic. And your plants will respond to that. But it takes time. So as I've been doing that more, I've seen my yields increase and I've seen my plants do better, even in some pretty dry years mm-hmm. um, and some really hot years. Even the year where we had this terrible heat dome, you know, and our farm hit 108 degrees, which was crazy. 
we had squash plants that had just gone in the ground not too long ago. They were tiny little plants, and I thought, well, they're all dead. But they weren't, and they survived, and we actually got a pretty decent harvest from them. So it's, it is totally possible. It's definitely one of those, like, leap of faiths, I think, the first time you do it. But then afterwards, it's pretty cool mm-hmm. to see that happening. Now, I know one of the biggest challenges has been, I know there's a huge amount of interest um, from gardeners, from, like, master gardener programs, about, like, well, how do we do this on a garden level? And it's, it's harder in a garden setting to just go completely no water. Mm-hmm. So talk about some of the challenges of that. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of gardeners are working typically in much smaller spaces. Uh, so if you just kind of, uh, just to give an example, think about 100 square feet. If you have a garden space that's 5 foot by 20 foot, that's going to be two or three squash plants, depending on your soil, water holding characteristics, and depth. So a lot of gardens that do have the ability to irrigate, you want to, in that 100 square feet, have a diversity of things. Um, So I think that really the planting density and um, the space that a gardener is actually working with is uh, something to consider. I know my, in my home garden, I, while I dry farm and work with farmers in dry farming, I irrigate my home garden. I have a very small yard and I want to have my greens, my herbs, my berries. So, and then containers. There are some farmers that uh, are in an urban setting and they just have containers. And I've actually had that question, like, how, how can I dry farm in my raised beds or my containers? It's like, well, that you, that's going to dry out faster and... Um, you know, really, when we're planting in the ground and dry farming, our, the plant roots have the ability to seek what they, you know, need deeper. And so not irrigating uh, is encouraging those roots to go deeper. They kind of scavenge for water. They're scavenging for water, for nutrients. And so if they're in a container, that's going to be, as you can imagine, that's going to be really limited. So I think that's um, a lot of gardeners really want to work on water conservation and they like a lot of the values around dry farming. But depending on the size of the garden and the soil and, it, you know, like I said, the raised beds and the containers aren't really going to be, um, they're going to make it, they're not going to uh, be supportive of, you know, not irrigating. One thing that I found, which I think, you know, possibly can translate to a garden setting is that like in, we do have a section on our farm that I, that I do irrigate. The, the beds were, it was established much earlier before I learned about dry farming mm-hmm. and so the beds are closer together they're more narrow I mean those beds are, are I think are um, about 30 inches with maybe an 18 inch path in between and my dry farming beds are more like four feet wide with a two and a half foot bed uh, path in between so much bigger spacing between plants but in the in the closer spacing I do grow tomatoes in that area um, that can be dry farmed and what I do is, as I'm mixing the, the plants in with the other crops, so I've got a row of tomatoes and I've got a row of bush beans right next to it. Well, I might be irrigating the beans, but I don't irrigate the tomatoes. Or maybe I'll water them when they're just planted and then let them establish themselves. And so there's water being applied in the area, mm-hmm. but it's not directly on the tomatoes. And the tomatoes are fine, and I get great production from them. I've got more tomatoes than I know what to do with right now because those roots are finding water. Water's being applied in the neighborhood. So that I've thought that that could be a way for home gardeners to think about mm-hmm. like maybe where you've got your zucchini plant, you don't have to actually put water on the zucchini plant, but if it's near stuff that's getting watered, 
it's going to find it. Mm-hmm. You were talking about um, telling me a story of like some tomatoes that you had, you were doing comparison trials and some were irrigated and some weren't. Mm-hmm. And the unirrigated ones had like put their roots down and how far did they travel over? Uh, multiple feet. That wasn't our trial. Oh. That was actually the Benton County Master Gardeners. Oh, that they was tell- it. Yeah. yeah okay. They were telling that. Yeah. One of them was, was telling me that story. So when they were removing their plants at the end of the season, they were pulling up the dry farm tomato plants and then realizing that root went all the way over to the irrigated bed, like a few feet away. So, so it found the water. It found the water. <laughs> you know, that's, that is a characteristic of the, a lot of these crops that are do well uh, without irrigation in our dry summers. Like they're good at um, they have roots that will, you know, explore and get what they need. I've definitely found too with a storage thing, that is entirely true for the winter squash that I grow, the delicatas, some of the smaller kind of red curry type squash, um, ones that would kind of spoil earlier, they actually keep a really long time and their mm-hmm. flavor is great, but the, but the storage is really pretty good. And I would say that even true about the zucchini, um, which isn't something you really think about being a long storing crop, but they hold a really long time. And, you know, zucchinis are pretty heavy in moisture. And, you know, when you think about it being drier, that doesn't like a dry zucchini doesn't sound very appealing. There's still plenty of moisture in the zucchini that I grow that you could make zucchini bread, you could bake with it. It's got a lot of water in it still. But it is drier and it does like if you want to slice it and put it on a barbecue it really holds up to that well too mm-hmm. so it's it's helped me understand you know not just like being dogmatic about like don't apply any water at all to this but like that there are some crops that need less and and i think with a resource like water as we look at these like epic droughts that western united states is facing like how do we use less water yeah. is is a good answer and maybe the answer for you isn't no water but it can still be less yeah i think that something i talk with a lot of growers about is just like there's not a concise recipe there's these pra- the suite of practices that we can use to support uh, in some cases on where sites are suitable growing without irrigation but on other sites those same techniques like wider spacing and selecting appropriate varieties and planting early when there's still moisture in the surface for plants to get established. A lot of these practices could support reducing irrigation where the soil or the site characteristics aren't conducive to just simply not irrigating. And then uh, where there is irrigation available, like, you know, we all know dry farming is not a yield maximization strategy. So we're working how to, working with the, in the context of our site, and uh, it's very low input, place-based. And um, so that's another, another thing I think that I talk with people a lot about. You're getting kind of quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. But y- well, you still get some quantity. I mean, you can still get a trade-offs. decent amount. Yeah. yeah, something we haven't talked about is like the trade-offs for the farmer. Like when we're not irrigating and then managing the weeds that we're irrigating, you know, there's some your time is freed up to do other things that are important to give attention on the farm. So you're not having to lay out Mm -hmm. irrigation lines, whether you're using drip irrigation or overhead watering, you know, hauling that equipment around, Mm -hmm. even in a home garden, if you're just walking around with your hose and spending time watering your garden, you're not having to do that. And that definitely has been a time saver for me and a time saver in resources. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, for a lot of farmers that use drip irrigation, it's these long lines of plastic and then they get holes in it and you can only patch it so many times and you've got to throw Mm -hmm. it away. And it's, 
it can be kind of heartbreaking to mm -hmm. think about that. So it, it is like a reduction in resources and a time-saving thing. And for the most part, except for years when it does rain in the summertime, reducing the water really does reduce your weed pressure mm -hmm. because you're not watering your weeds. Right. And then another, one of our most valuable tools, I think, is learning about appropriate varieties and cultivars. Yeah, and I wanted you to talk a bit about that, because there's like breeding and selection going on for that too now. Yeah, yeah, there's, um, there's you know, multiple people, farmers kind of in the dry farming collaborative that are working on selecting and saving seed on varieties that they've seen do well on their farm. And, and then um, Lucas Niebert is working with corn and beans and been selecting and um, uh, saving, you know, developing varieties that are conducive to dry farming. So, but start, but we've done variety trials looking at, you know, 10, 20 or so varieties of a particular crop. And there's some varieties that just do much better than others. And, um, so starting with an appropriate variety, this yield reduction that we see in dry farming when we're not irrigating, um, can be, you know, you can balance that scale out a little bit by just starting with a, a, a variety that, that does well. Does better without being irrigated yeah. or minimal irrigation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about, like, uh, there's a, a culinary aspect of this too, and you've worked some with the Culinary Breeding Network or talked to them about dry farming and different varieties and doing some taste trials of things. Mm -hmm. Is that going on? Where's that, yeah. where's that heading? Yeah, Lane Selman and Alex Stone, um, and Matt Davis, there, so there's, there is a project currently that they're working on and going to be doing more tastings and, um, and collecting some data with that to share. But I think in general, there's uh, when we do blind tastings at farmer's markets of side-by-side -side irrigated and dry farm tomatoes, for example, or melons, a lot of people uh, definitely key in right away to like the more f the enhanced flavor and texture of the, of the dry farmed versus the irrigated. And then... Yeah, there's also data all over the place because people are like have different preferences. Some people like a watery tomato, you know, so. <laughs> and I definitely can see how, you know, it, it does really depend on varieties. And I've certainly experienced that as um, tomatoes was, were a huge challenge for me um, because in taking part in some of the research trials, because I kept having to grow all the same tomatoes that all the farmers in the Willamette Valley were growing to be part of this trial so we could compare variety to variety. But a lot of those varieties did terrible out here on the coast because we just have very different growing conditions and we don't have the heat that they have in the valley to ripen certain things. And so I finally had to drop out of those trials because like, it's just pointless. I'm just mm -hmm. growing green tomatoes every year. But you do start to find varieties that do well in your area, in your garden, in, on your farm. I think we all start to develop our favorite varieties. Mm -hmm. And having some guidance of these are ones that do well mm -hmm. um, what are some of the like the some of the squash that seem to do well mm -hmm. in in dry farming I know that the, the dark star zucchini is a classic and that was bred in a dry farming conditions mm -hmm. but um, for winter squash is it the the Stella blue yeah Stella blue that is one that has done well for us and um, we also tried multiple varieties of delicata and zeppelin uh, was one that stood out uh, one of, um, uh, another favorite that's a really large squash is the North Georgia candy roaster, which looks like a, like a big pink banana. And, you know, the, the variety recommendations, so like, as you already mentioned, uh -huh. like, like some of the things that do well for us in the valley don't necessarily ripen on the coast. So I really feel like uh, developing some region, bioregion specific recommendations and um, 
is going to be important because, you know, it's like take those varieties and plant them uh, in another location and they may not do as well. But there is a dry farming seed directory um, being developed as a collaborative resource uh, on the dry on dryfarming.org website. So let's talk a little about if mm -hmm. people want more information, because this is just such a, a skimming the surface of mm -hmm. talking about this as a project. So there's multiple places that if people want more information, want to learn more about this, um, they can access information. So talk a little bit a little bit about where are some of the places that they can find more information. Mm -hmm. um, currently, I work with the OSU Extension Small Farms Program. So if you get on the Small Farms, uh, OSU Extension Small Farms Program website, there is a dry farming page, and on that there's a resource, there's a resource tab. So there's some archived resources from our various variety trials and an extension publication that uh, does a good job of outlining some of the basic practices that support dry farming. There's also the Dry Farming Collaborative as a community of practice. So this includes growers, both farmers and gardeners, plant breeders, uh, researchers, educators, all uh, partnering to increase knowledge and awareness about dry farming. And there's a Facebook group that has a really active, um, there's a lot of sharing of, you know, uh, articles, questions. Sometimes people will share pictures of their plots. So that is a really active um, community that I would encourage anybody who's interested to join if you're on Facebook. And another resource is the Dry Farming Collaborative has a YouTube channel. So the past few years in the pandemic, we have um, been uh, doing virtual field tours and virtual winter meetings and virtual, you know, so we've archived uh, a lot of those presentations and field tours in on our Dry Farming Collaborative YouTube channel. So I'd recommend checking that so out. just on YouTube and you look up Dry Farming Collaborative? Yeah, yep, Dry Farming Collaborative YouTube. And then we uh, will continue to build that um, and are going to be expanding that as well. So that's uh, there's a few resources. And the other one I mentioned is um, dryfarming.org. So the Dry Farming Institute is a nonprofit that kind of blossomed out of this community of practice. And we are developing some resources there to help fill in the gaps. So people ask, what varieties do well dry farm? Where can I get the seed? Um, where did that variety do well? Was it in a trial in Astoria or was it in a trial in Southern Oregon? So we are um, developing a dry farming seed directory that you can access on the dryfarming.org website. And that will give you some sense of mm -hmm. these varieties have shown some promise in mm -hmm. being grown in, in low to no water situations. Here's where you get seed. Mm -hmm. Those yeah. kind of resources. It's, it's a lot to take on, but when I think the timeliness of this, as we look at the changing climate that we're facing and the more volatility of our weather, our seasons, things changing, and especially for those of us here in the West, even on the coast, even when we do get these really heavy rainfall years and lots of moisture, you know, since I've been growing here on the coast, I've had drought years, I've experienced that. And it's kind of scary when you see how abruptly that can change. And so what's cool about this is I think learning how to face those years with, a, with some tools to keep growing and keep providing food for yourself or for your community, mm -hmm. even if you can't irrigate. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like the, that's uh, why we're doing this. And um, it's given that it is like there's so much context for different sites and different um, you know, scales, 
having this community of practice with people applying some of these techniques and growing some of these varieties in different places, uh, I think advances our collective knowledge much quicker. So I think that there's a real value in um, this kind of community that's exploring this together. It's really fun to be a part of it. And uh, I certainly encourage anybody who's interested in pursuing this conversation further. Um, if you are just joining us or you've been listening or you came halfway through, I've been talking with Amy Garrett. She works with Oregon State University's Small Farms Program, Extension Small Farms Program. And she helped begin the Dry Farming Collaborative, this like research project looking into growing without irrigation. And my farm has been participating in that for a number of years. I've learned a tremendous amount from it. There's a lot of cool resources out there. I really encourage you to, to explore them and figure out how to use maybe a little bit less water and what you're doing. It's worth it. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having it's me. It's been Such great to pleasure. have this conversation, letting me talk about my passion. Yeah, um, I always and... love having some time with you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much to everyone who joined us. And um, I hope you enjoyed this show. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much.